Hey everyone, Feature Ian here with a quick content warning before we get started. Near the end of the episode, we will be discussing some of the objectionable activities that a certain faction is undertaking in Arcadia, as well as how these activities have parallels to some real-world issues, such as political re-education camps, gay conversion therapy, white colonialism, just to name a few. We discuss it briefly around the 55-minute mark, and then we go into a little bit more detail around the 1 hour 15 mark with a clear warning before we really dive in. So, if you feel like you don't want to deal with those issues, or if you might find them traumatic, you won't hurt our feelings if you choose not to listen this week, or if you want to duck out early. We will see you next time when we interview Christian, the developer behind the My Sound Elf app. That interview will be live on Friday, April 22nd at 9pm on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash undercommontaste, and will be released as our regular episode next Wednesday. Now, with all that out of the way, let's get on with the show. Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and when they fail on this purpose, they become dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I'm Ian Woodworth, I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are diving back into the peaceable kingdoms of Arcadia, going through the three layers, or the two layers and the layer that used to be. We'll get to that at the end. We'll get there. <laughs> Except we won't, because it's gone. This is where I'd keep my third layer, if I had one. <laughs> yeah, and as we talked about, we use the term peaceable with a bit of dry sarcasm. <laughs> well... It was peaceable until the Harmonium showed up. Yeah. And once we get to the second layer, once we get to Buxanus, we're going to go into a little bit of detail on that. We're not going to go into a huge amount of detail there because there's so much to unpack there. Yeah, it's, as we discussed last week, Arcadia looks idyllic on the surface and then a little bit of scratching off that surface and there are a lot of problems here again my personal you know alignment tends to range more towards chaotic and that would be part of my issue discussing things with ian going back and forth you know we need to do several episodes on theory crafting you know does the inch justify the means what is the definition of good because depending on where you stand or where your government would stand at the time you could really easily set up a despot or a dictator forcing their will saying it's for the greater good and they would almost fit here perfectly because everything is done for the quote quote greater good so it breaks down to what is that good yeah and that is actually a point that we're going to get to whenever we start talking about the harmonium when we get to the second layer because that is at the crux of what's going on there and they are responsible for some rather heinous things in the name of the greater good. And so that is going to bring in the question of what actually is the greater good? What does the greater good actually mean? And from whose perspective? Right. But yeah, there are great many topics that you could very easily dive into whenever we get there. There, I mean, there's, you know what? I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait until we get there. I'm just giving a teaser so we can then what to look forward to. We're not spoiling your dessert. Let's go. Let's just say that if you wanted to do a story that is focused on some aspect of social justice, 
Arcadia has that in a nice, neat package for you to unwrap. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> and we'll get to that. But let's go ahead and get started at the top, like we normally do. As with most of these outer planes, the bulk of the content is in the first layer. The first layer is where your players are going to have the most ready access. It's going to be the place that they are going to enter the plane from if they go there. It's the place where most of the things that they are going to have access to are going to be. And again, I always say kind of snidely is they wanted to do multiple layers and then, you know, they spend so much time setting up the first layer and they kind of run out of time, the layers down. But really, I mean, multiple layers, even in different things, it's really hard to kind of imagine. I mean, certain things like City of Dis, the heavens where you've got the different layers of heaven, that's easier to imagine. But something like this, that seems to be a little closer to a prime plane in feel. Understanding those layers is kind of wonky. And as a DM, you could probably blend them fairly well and nobody would really notice. Yeah. All right. So the first layer of Arcadia is Abelio. Abelio draws its name from the god Abelio, who was a Gallic Celtic god from Gallia Aquitania, which is the southwest region of France, down near the Pyrenees. Right. Just before the uh, Iberian Peninsula. Yeah. There's some debate among scholars what exactly Abelio was. Some believe he was a sun god, that his name is a bastardized version of Apollo, primarily because Julius Caesar, in his commentary on the Gallic Wars, refers to Abelio as Gallic Apollo. And it may also be just an alternate spelling for the Celtic god Belus or Belinus, who was a god of healing, frequently equated to Apollo in classical writing. Now, Julius Caesar, a lot of what we know from particularly, you know, Aquitania and Southwest Gaul is from Julius Caesar. And he recorded a fair bit of history, but you also got to remember everything he wrote. He was writing on his campaign to send back to Rome saying, hey, look how awesome I am. So, yes. you know, the fact that there might be a Roman version, you know, not quite Roman version of Apollo where Julius Caesar was going would only build his case to how awesome Julius. So, again, you can kind of take that with a grain of salt. But I could see some similarities because you have sun gods in most cultures and the name is fairly close. And even if it wasn't, it could be shifted over time because even as Romans were more in that area, they would have taken the writings of Caesar as absolute and it would have changed over time as dialects do. Right. And you do make a good point that it was as much an informative cataloging of events as it was a propaganda piece. So that is something that you, whenever you're reading these older manuscripts, you have to keep in mind that there is a definitive bent to the writing, that there is a purpose to the writing. It is not purely academic. Right. So the layer of Abelio is mostly flatland. You do have some mountains and hills that are spread across it in these patterns because as we said last week, everything has a very regimented look. Everything is in its place. Everything has been positioned in such a way as to be aesthetically pleasing. And so the hills and the mountains are in a very particular, very deliberate order. Yeah, you'd have things structured. You'd probably have like certain areas where you'd have little valleys carved out. But yeah, it would be very patternized. If you look at the map, it would probably almost look a little mosaic, I would imagine. Again, that would be up for DM discretion. Just understand you're not going to have a single mountain standing in the middle of the field. Everything's going to be very grouped. Yeah, and like I mentioned last week, you would get a very 90s, early 2000s video game sort of feel where they only modeled three or four different terrain aspects 
for each location and then they just sort of copy paste them because they only have room for so many assets within the memory of the game. Right. So it's going to also have a little bit of that feel to it. So most of this layer is forests and fields that are crossed by streams and dotted by lakes. This is a layer of plenty. So everything, even common beasts, provide for the common good. You're still going to have people that are hunting the beasts, but they're going to be more along the lines of how... They'll be subsistence hunting, not trophy hunting, really. So again, they're going to hunt to provide just enough material nourishment need to provide for their group, be it leathers, be it bone for art, be it meat for food. But they're not going to go and try to, I mean, one or two might try to kill the biggest of things and still because that would be an efficient way to process the most out of a single kill. But they're not going to go and like, let's see who can kill the most bunny rabbits in a single hour type thing. In the Western Plains in America where the settlers came out and they almost wiped out the buffalo and the bison because they could kill them, skin a hide, leave the meat, and they were just selling the hide for profit. That wouldn't happen here. Absolutely not. It does have a very American indigenous feel to it where you honor the life of the creature that you have taken by using all aspects of the body, that there is no waste because this is what is the right thing to do. And so again, that goes into that greater good. So I mean, even still, there can be some violence stars hunting, but it's not excessive. It's just enough that's needed. That said, even if the animals attack you, if you were to be set upon by a wild beast, which could happen, it's probably you're close to their den or where their cubs are or something like that. And they are not going to pursue you till you're dead. They're going to pursue you till you are no longer a threat to them and whatever they are guarding. You potentially could be stung by a bee if you're going to disrupt the hive for their honey, but they're not going to swarm and follow you out. If you could somehow convince the animals that you're not there to destroy the hive, but take a portion of the honey, they would probably allow you to do that with minimal interruption. Right. There are a number of planar entities that have moved into Abelio from other upper planes, seeking to carve out a slice of the plane for themselves. So these are things like Archons from Mount Celestia. From the view of the petitioners here on the first layer, it is thought that that is part of the reason why the petitioners have become so paranoid about outsiders. It's because they're coming in and putting their non-Arcadian ideals and morals into the soup if you will and it's shifting the perspective of the plane and that's the first level of it we get in arcadia wow it took us a whole what 10 minutes to get to the first spot of ick in this layer <laughs> just a little bit of xenophobia um, it's fine we don't want the members coming across and changing our stuff the hell <laughs> well this particular line of thought seems to be supported by the harmonium the harmonium are really the bad guys here they really are so they really reinforce they support this line primarily because it draws attention away from their activities in the plane it gives them a scapegoat to point a finger at and say it's their fault we've been here for a long time you know what we're about they're the newcomers they're the ones that are responsible for all of this and going with this whole thing about the outsiders coming and changing the plane i mean one i find it difficult on the start for anything but two all of the planes, including Abelio, when you're on the plane, affects that character, either be it player, character, NPC. There are certain things, certain aspects that the plane itself shifts the player or the character versus the character shifting the plane. So this seems completely 
backwards as a line of thought to me because again it changes the way your magic's used it changes your spell slots it changes like if you have a wild surge if you're a sorcerer so i mean the plane itself is protecting itself or maintaining itself it's not the people coming in that's changing it it seems to be that if any change it's going to be the petitioners and the entities that are already there the counter argument that i'm going to make to that is those are effects that are happening to creatures from the material plane is it only i thought it was for even from outer outer planets no, for the perspective that you're giving these are prime creatures coming to the plane and having the plane act on them okay i figured that was for any outside creature whereas these planar entities are from another one of the outer planes so they are going to be affected differently i'm not saying that it's not going to affect them because it does okay but it is going to affect them differently and less substantially than it will a being from the prime material plane. I would listen to that argument. Okay, you can make a fair point with that, yes. Mainly because when you're in the prime material plane, you're not constantly subjected to the will of the location that you're in. Correct. Because the prime material plane has no will to exert on the creatures within it. Okay. So whenever you go to an outer plane, suddenly... The location has a will and you have to deal with it. And so that is an oddity that you're not used to. And that's why it is so substantial in the effect. I could see that. But even as you say, the plane itself has a will. So it's not such a push around. But yeah, no, you do make a fair point that it could be different or less from other extra planar creatures versus from a prime plane, which is where you and I and the fourth wall is from. Yes. And because the primary outsider that is mentioned here are creatures from Mount Celestia, which is a very similar plane. It is a plane where law is roughly the same, maybe a tiny bit less enforced, but good is more enforced. Yes. And then the perspective, you're going from a group perspective in Arcadia to an individual perspective in Mount Celestia. That is the perspective shift. Okay. Going from the group to the individual and vice versa. Whereas the overarching notes, the broad brushstrokes are the same. Gotcha. You're using the same flavors in a different concentration. Yeah, no, I like that. Okay. I can follow with that one. All right. Now that we've gotten that philosophy segment out of the way. So much philosophy to do on this plane. The petitioners here seek to achieve peace and freedom through service and belief. They all want to make sure that they've mastered the quote unquote right set of beliefs and believe that outsiders introducing alternate beliefs set them back on their path to enlightenment. Yeah, and you lost me again. (laughs) And this is why the best, most militant petitioners form the Einherjar militia to defend the plane from outsiders who are not, quote, right thinking. Right. Because they do, they view alternate viewpoints as a threat to their existence. Yes. We don't know anything about that in the United States. Nope, not at all. (laughs) And again, as you do this, this does feel more correct for like, as we'll talk about the Formians, which are like the giant ant people things. And I can kind of see that too. It reminds me of, I think it was White was the author, but Once in Future King, it talks about the Arthurian legends. And one of my favorites is at one point, Merlin transforms Arthur into an ant. And all the ants can say is good or not good. 
and that is their soul. It's very binary for them. And so if something wasn't good, if it wasn't the same thought process as the rest of the colony, it was not good and it was to be destroyed. And you kind of get that feel here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's talk about some of the locations within uh, Arcadia. Yay. I brought souvenir cups. <laughs> so the first location is the Basilica of St. Cuthbert. This is the one location that was added in third edition. So this is the divine realm of the Greyhawk God, St. Cuthbert. And it is centered around his seat, which is the seat of truth. It is a walled basilica. So think of the large domed churches that you see in Rome or in other very old European cities. Or if you want to find a good one, look up the Hagia Sophia. Yeah, I was about to say the Hagia Sophia is also a great example of a basilica. This is going to be a much grander scale than that. The highest domes of the Basilica of St. Cuthbert reach a mile into the sky. And it is surrounded by this wall that is constantly patrolled by specially chosen paladins of St. Cuthbert. You paladins. (laughs) And the Seat of Truth stands at the center of the Basilica and is the rarely occupied seat of St. Cuthbert when he happens to be sitting in judgment or council. Um, St. Cuthbert is one of those very common sense sort of gods. So he goes out and does stuff periodically because he's like, well, it needs to get done. So I'm just going to go and do it. Wow. He actually does stuff. That's oh, impressive. Yes. Oh, yes. He's quite <laughs> noted for he likes to go to the material plane disguised as just a normal human wearing robes and carrying a mace. I like it. Because the cudgel of St. Cuthbert is a very powerful artifact. Yes. So the seat sits under a canopy that is supported by these four serpentine pillars. And these pillars are trophies that St. Cuthbert took home after he decided one day to make a brief crusade into Bator. Oh, just on a Wednesday. Well, I've got some extra time. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Let's go crusading, guys. So he walks into Bator, smacks around some devils, decides, I like the look of these things, uproots them takes them back to Arcadia with him and sets them up around his chair. You know, it's like a book on the coffee table for him. It's yeah. just, <laughs> and this is from my trip to Bator. <laughs> so there are many Einherjar clerics and paladins who stay within the Basilica, but he sends many of them out on missions across the plains in his name. So while he is a god, he is still an individual And whenever he manifests, he can't be in multiple places at once. He does still send out emissaries to take care of things on his behalf. Understandable. And there are modest accommodations available within the Basilica for any visitors that are coming to seek an audience with St. Cuthbert. So if you really needed to talk to him, you can get put up in a room. You'll have a bed to sleep on. You'll You'll have have a hard bed, a dresser, and maybe a chamber pot. Yeah, it's going to be the bare minimum. It won't be comfortable, but it will be a safe and serviceable arrangement. It'd be like back in the 80s and 90s and probably before where you could get like the really cheap hotels and they were clean and they were fine, but they were dimly lit. You had the one bed, you had the countertop and always had like the weird Gideon Bible in the drawer. And I was like, yeah, you got a room. There you go. Okay, great. Good night. See you tomorrow. (laughs) I mean, it's very much styled after the medieval monastery and the chambers for the monks. Yes. I mean, it is literally just a room with a cot and probably 
a candle, maybe. Right. Maybe a little end table. You might have a chest to put your stuff in. And that's going to be about it. That's all you really need, though. Yeah, You probably wouldn't even have like a wash basin. You would have to go to the communal wash area to clean. No, I mean, I like that. And again, you're not here to stay for a long time, you hope. So yeah, you should only be here for a few days. So yeah, no, you've got enough to rest from your travels. You get your business done and then GTFO. No, you're good. So now let's get into some of the older locations. Yay! The first (laughs) one is one that I really love. It's called Mandible. Mandible is a Formian city, and it is built with the organic structure of an ant colony. Mandible is different from most of your Formian cities in that a large portion of it is above ground. And in the above ground area, non-Formians are actually allowed to come in and visit and do trade and all of that um, to the point where Mandible actually is a major mercantile hub within Arcadia. The true ruler of the city is Queen Mother Kiltikthra. <laughs> well done. I wasn't sure how you can do that one. Well done. Non-Formians refer to her as Clarity for obvious reasons, but there is a triumvirate of underqueens that are the visible rulers of the city's day-to-day operations. You don't get to ever see Clarity. Clarity is at the bottom of the hive next to the place of eggs. She's the queen. She's down there laying eggs. and She's doing queen stuff. She has the ability to use her psychic link with all of the hive to command the hive to do a very specific task at her behest. But by and large, Formians don't do that because it impedes the efficiency of the hive right they don't micromanage they don't you know what you're supposed to be do get it done we'll leave you alone it's the best kind of manager yeah it is there are three under queens that see to the day-to-day operations of the city i have only put down their non-formian address names because i wasn't going through all of the 500 (laughs) apostrophes again the first one is general kel She maintains the fighting forces and governs the soldier's ward. The soldier's ward is the first underground layer underneath the city where the warrior Formians reside, where they drill, where they protect the rest of the hive from any incursions from the surface. The next one is Merchant Xerxes, who rules the portion of the city open to foreigners, so the above ground area and watches over the workers who are operating within the city. I'm surprised they picked Xerxes for that name, but okay. (laughs) It's because it sounds similar to the jumble of letters and apostrophes that is actually her name. Okay, fair enough. And then the final one is Hive Matron Talus, who rules the majority of the city, which is everything underneath the soldier's ward. So from the soldiers ward down. So the day-to-day operations of making sure that the actual Formians are taken care of, making sure that the hive is secure, making sure that the eggs are being tended to, making sure that the queen mother is being tended to. All three queens rotate positions to gain experience with all parts of running the city. And once they have all served in all three portions They get given a few Formians, and they're sent off into the wilds to start their own colony. No, I like that. And then a new underqueen is pulled out from the ranks of the underqueens that are hatched and put up into the next role. Because that is how they learn, that is how they advance, that is how they 
repopulate. It's a really solid work study program. I like it. Yeah. I say I like the Formians. The Formians are kind of cool. They make good little enemies you can throw on the table, but if you want to run a city of the Formians, they're generally not giant douches. So like I said, I do like the Formians. I wish we got to see them a bit more than we do. They are kind of one of the unloved races or species. They really are. Within, but I've got a warm spot for them. Yeah. They got a very sinister write-up whenever they got translated into 3rd edition. Yeah, I blame Ender's Game. <laughs> the third edition Formians are a bit more Savage. colonial. Yeah. They're a lot more expansionist. Very much so. Yeah. Than second edition Planescape Formians. I love the Formians as presented in second edition, not so much the ones in third edition. The ones in third edition tended to get a little more monolithic. They were styled after the Formians that are in Mechanus. There was no mention at all that they are actually native to Arcadia or the way that they would behave within Arcadia. You had to go into the Man of the Plains and actually look up the entry for Mandible, which is like three paragraphs, and it made it sound like the Formians in Arcadia were the exception rather than the rule, which is backwards. Yes. But that's just something that got lost in the translation between editions. So it is impossible for non-Formians who enter into the subterranean portions of the city to not get lost. It's something about the nature of the tunnels that only a Formian can actually navigate them. Okay. And they love to leave things like the occasional pile of bones in the middle of the hallway to discourage curious people from going into the tunnels. Now, see, that reminds me, if you've ever played Vampire the Masquerade, if you ever go down to the Nosferatu Warrens, which are generally like the sewers or the catacombs of a city, they are designed like that, too, where they are designed to be intentionally confusing. And if you're a Nosferatu, if you live in these Warrens, then you know where everything's at. But for an outsider, you have to like either go and try to make marks or try to remember. Generally, you require an escort to get out because once you're in, you're kind of in their lair. And if you piss them off, they're not letting you out because, again, it's that intentionally confusing bunch of left turns and then a right, except for when it's sunny on Sunday and the walls move on you. (laughs) Yeah, there are militia patrols throughout the city, both above and below ground. The patrols consist of a single Mirmark, which are the most powerful of the Formians, accompanied by 10 warriors. So every squad is one Mirmark, 10 warriors. Okay. Whenever they get to an altercation, they always try negotiation first and they will leave it if they feel like they have come to a resolution to whatever issue they were forced to address. So if there's an argument going on, they're going to stop the argument. They're going to talk to the parties and they're going to attempt to come to a common ground conclusion. Holy crap. Diplomacy is a thing. I know, right? And if they can come to a diplomatic solution where both parties are satisfied and they part ways, that's it. It's done. They've dealt with it. If they can't resolve the issue, they subdue the troublemaker and deposit them outside of the city. And they only resort to violence in cases of self-defense. No, I like these guys. I mean, these guys are pretty cool. So the only way you're going to end up actually fighting the Formians is if you decide to go murder hobo on them. Yeah, and then they're going to wreck your stuff. And it gets pretty easy for them to subdue you whenever the Miramarks have a paralytic poison in their stingers. So if you decide to pick a fight with them, they can sting you, you're paralyzed, and then they just pick you up and toss you out. And they just yeet you out the city. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) As I mentioned, Mandible is one of the major trading hubs in Arcadia. The merchants within Mandible 
generally don't deal in magical items or in items that would be considered illicit. So things like drugs or obviously evil aligned items or things that would be used, say, to make a lich. Right. Because again, remember, every petitioner and every denizen of this plane has at will detect alignment. And mm-hmm. so this is a lawful good plane. The city law, and again, you still have these roving patrols and things like that through the city that even if you step off the walking path into the grass, are going to come start asking you questions to see what the hell you're doing. So yeah, you're not going to have a black market set up here. It's just not going to happen. No, not in this one. All right. That pretty much takes care of Mandible. Next up, another really cool location. One that I mentioned last week, Marduk. Marduk is the name of the realm, the city within the realm, and the god who runs the show. It's kind of like Maynardville. He's a real paragon of modesty, Marduk. Marduk's full title is Binder of Dragons. He was originally an aspect of Bahamut, and following, I believe it was the Orc Gate War that we have mentioned once before, Marduk was slain and Bahamut absorbed his divine essence. But Marduk was a member of the Untheric Pantheon, which is the Mesopotamian gods, and he was a god of civilization and storms. In real-world mythology, Marduk was the king of the gods in Babylonian mythology. Right, I was going to say, you're going to find Marduk mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which, if you can go and find a version of that, I mean, the whole thing's hard to read, and we actually don't have a fully complete version, but you can find different videos. There's some pretty cool animated versions. It's actually a pretty cool story if you can get through it. If you want some culture, go do that. Yeah. <laughs> the realm of Marduk is styled after the terrain of Mesopotamia. The city of Marduk is basically classical Baghdad. It's an arid land, but not a desert. It's hot, but it's not scorching. It's dry, but it's not desiccating. So if you can think of, again, this is where I grew up, but the Central Valley in California, it's that. If you're more on Europe side, it's going to be like your southern coast of Spain or your western coasts of Italy, where, again, it's going to be dry. It's going to be hot, fairly flat. Good for growing stuff, though. Lots of vines. (laughs) It also has twin rivers flowing through it. The Luar and the Calf, as opposed to the Tigris and Euphrates. So the city of Marduk is the only city within this realm, and it is situated between these two rivers. You can find most goods that an honest person might need here. I love that caveat. (laughs) Yeah, that an honest person might need. But the technology is all Bronze Age. So you're not going to end up having iron or steel weapons. You're not going to have iron or steel armor. So the weapons and armor that you can find here are typically not going to be very useful to adventurers. This would be a great place to go if you're planning maybe a fey adventure later on bring your players here get a bunch of bronze and copper stuff because well no because you still want the iron stuff too so never mind scratch that i have that flipped you yeah never mind scratch that (laughs) but you could end up coming here and getting bronze weapons and armor so that you have something to wear that isn't going to piss off the fake there you go that's what i was trying to go with yes exactly That way you don't have to leave your gear behind. You don't have to go in unarmed and unarmored. Right. You can still have that stuff. And two, going back, this is going to be basically classical or ancient Babylon. You don't have the caveat here that there are no magical weapons. So you will probably be able to find some plus one, plus two, whatever bronzed thing. Because again, Babylonian, Chaldea, magic was very much part of their culture and their mythos. So finding some magical items that way would very easily fit for this as well. Yeah, I can definitely see that. 
The city itself is patrolled by Marduk's personal petitioners who are called the Kindari. That is literally all I can find about them. I can't find (laughs) any entry explaining what the Kindari are. It doesn't mention it in the entry for Marduk. It doesn't mention it in any sort of monster supplement. I can't even find an entry on the internet. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, the only Kindari I can find on the internet is an individual from the Legend of the Five Rings setting. So that's not what we're talking about. Google kept trying to tell me I was actually talking about Kinder. I am not. No, Kinder or something. Kinder do not belong here. Which I am happy that Kinder are getting a bit more. Again, I tend to like the Cairn, uh, the Cairn realms for D&D, and I'm happy they are getting more of a push. So yay, Kinder soon. <laughs> so anyone who breaks one of Marduk's laws, and there are lots of them, and is caught by one of the Kindari is immediately brought to a judge for a swift sentence and a swifter execution. Again, from this, you're going to go, going with the ancient Babylon field, your Code of Hammurabi, which is, you know, our first recorded set of laws that we have found historically exactly from this area. So there are set laws. They are known. They are strict. The whole eye for an eye comes from the Code of Hammurabi. So yeah, you could definitely tell there'd probably be pillars on every other corner with laws that kind of, be it magically or actually stone carved in what the laws were. Ignorance is not a defense. Absolutely. So I put this particular NPC into my notes because she is really interesting. The executioner of the city is a Githzerai named Triaga Hendrick, and she has been able to shield her lawful evil alignment through magical means. And she also happens to be the head of the Thieves Guild in Marduk. Holy hell. Damn. The Thieves Guild is this big bureaucracy that has almost as many laws as the realm in general. And she is able to use her position to basically make sure that the people who are dealing with the guild are on the up and up for the guild, that they're following the rules and that they're not doing stupid things to get exposed. Because if you present yourself as a threat to the guild, she will arrange to have the Kindari arrest you on a charge, brought before a judge, the judge sentences you, and then she lops off your head. Yeah, I mean, if you get caught stealing, you're not that good of a thief. She doesn't want you anyway. Right. <laughs> and because it's set up as a dues plus percentage system. So you have to pay a certain amount of dues in order to be a member of the guild. And then you have to also give the guild a certain percentage of your take. Okay. And if you're withholding on that, that's enough to get you in hot water with the guild too. That gets you caught too. But on the other side, if you are a guild member in good standing and you get caught by the Kendari, she is able to arrange it so that, well, I don't know, he managed to escape or to set it up so that you basically fake your execution. Interesting. Yeah. That's pretty damn impressive and could actually explain a lot of other things. No, that's fairly profound for this realm. The last important thing about this realm is that all dragons and dragon kin are forbidden to enter the realm. So you're dragonborn, not coming in here. This stems from Marduk's status as the binder of dragons. It is said that he and Tiamat 
emerge from their lairs once every 100 years and fight to establish which one of them will be the dominant power, presumably over dragonkind, for the ensuing century. He is the enemy of all dragons, essentially, and it extends to creatures like fairy dragons and pseudo dragons and probably things like wyverns. It's not specified because Dragonborn wasn't really a thing in second edition, but it may possibly also extend to Dragonborn. I would personally extend it to Dragonborn. I would extend it to Dragonborn, or if you didn't, I would say like, because again, Marduk was an aspect of Bahamut. If you have a chromatic dragonborn then they are like scrutinized every little thing they do and nobody everyone's like you know borderline hostile they will not talk to them they will not trade with them at best act like they're not there if not be outright violent and hostile towards them again that would be a dm call but that's how i would do that so the dragons who do enter the realm are hunted until they're found good aligned dragons are ejected from the realm neutral and evil dragons are slain on the spot So your gem dragons and your chromatic dragons are all just going to be slain on the spot. Gotcha. Lawful good dragons are politely asked to leave and not let the door hit them on the way out. (laughs) While neutral good and chaotic good dragons are forcibly subdued and ejected. Damn. And this is made a whole lot easier because while dragons are within the realm of Marduk, they have no access to their special abilities, including their breath weapons, including their shape change abilities, including their spell abilities. Oh. So they have to rely on their wings, their claws, their teeth, their tails. And their AC. (laughs) And their scales, yeah. But it also makes them largely unable to hide their presence because, you know, they may be walking around in a humanoid form. As soon as they cross the threshold into Marduk, boom, they're a dragon. I like it. They're visibly a dragon. Personally, if you allowed Dragonborn within Marduk, I would extend this to their breath weapon so that they can't use their breath weapon while they are within the realm. I would also extend it to there. They get immunities. Depending on their level, they get immunities to certain damage types. I would take that from them as well. Yeah, resistance or immunities to their damage types. I would also possibly even extend this to a Draconic Bloodline Sorcerer. Oh. Maybe not take away their spellcasting ability, but definitely take away their metamagic. Take away their sorcery points. That would be awesome. That'd piss off your players. That'd be awesome. (laughs) I would totally do that. That would be interesting. I don't know if a a whole party of sorcerers. You could do it. You could do it. It'd be interesting. I wouldn't recommend it, especially not without multi-classing, but you could do it. Yeah. That would be a squishy party. It would be a very squishy (laughs) party, but the damage they could throw out would be crazy. Oh, yes. Absolutely. All right. Let's move along. I think this is the last location within the first layer. It is Mount Klangeddon. The direct quote from the second edition book is, It's battle in glory, straight formations marching off cheerfully into the teeth of destruction. It's sweat and blood and friendship, honor and glory and triumph all rolled into one. It's drill until the body's ready to drop from exhaustion, the only will remaining, the desire to do the power proud. It encapsulates everything about the militant aspect of dwarves. Yes. Because... Klangeddon is the dwarven god of battles, not just the god of war. He's the god of battles. He's the god of fighting as a unit, of achieving glory with your comrades, not individually. Exactly. So this is where you're going to have talk of notable dwarven companies, dwarven units, 
you're going to have the dwarf equivalents of the Light Brigade or the Winged Hussars or... Yeah, I was going to say, these are the Dwarven Marines. Or the Army Rangers or the Navy Seals or, you know, something on that level. This is where you're talking about the elite units as opposed to the Dwarven champions. Right. This particular mountain is the realm of Klangid and Silverbeard. It is a perfectly conical mountain rising well over 30,000 feet into the air. So for comparison, Mount Everest is what, 26,000 some odd? Is it 26 or 28? Let me consult the oracles here. 29,000. 29,000, okay. So it's just one up to a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, so for comparison, Mount Klangeddon is just a little bit taller than Mount Everest. Just a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Mr. Mario. You got to one-up me. See how it is. (laughs) Now, the pictures of Mount Klangeddon on the maps show a very skinny, tall cone. I would do this differently. I would do this as the diameter of the cone equals the height. Kind of like the whole Arch of St. Louis thing? Yeah. Okay. Because I want this to be a stocky, stout mountain. It's got to be a dwarf mountain. It's got to be a dwarf mountain, right? It's not an elf mountain. It's a dwarf mountain. Yeah, I don't want a tall, skinny mountain. That's (laughs) Tall and skinny is not dwarf. Short and stout is a dwarf. (laughs) So the passages within the mountain go perfectly straight until they would run into another passage or chamber. And the dwarves that are digging through the mountain just intrinsically know exactly where all of the other passages and chambers within the mountain are when they're digging. That's because they're looking top down because they're playing Dwarf Fortress. (laughs) (laughs) And so they are able to curve the pathways around all of the other chambers. And so you'll be walking along and then all of a sudden this pathway that's been going straight and straight and straight and straight just has this sweeping curve off to the right. And that's where it's going around this room that happens to be there. Okay. And they just intrinsically know where that is. It's an extrapolation of a dwarf's stone cunning so that they're always able to navigate within underground environments. They always know which direction is north. They always are able to find their way within a dwarven stronghold, within the mines, within the tunnels that they carve. Okay. There are always these mock battles and military drills taking place within this layer, both within the mountain and on the fields and the hills surrounding the mountain. You've always got these units that are just marching around doing these mock battles with one another, trying to learn to function as a unit to the greatest ability possible. Yeah, because you need you need that practice. The dwarves welcome outsiders into the realm. They are always very happy to point out how formidable the defenses are, as well as how formidable the dwarves manning the defenses are. It's a bit of a flex. (laughs) It is more than a bit. (laughs) But they're also very secretive regarding their military secrets. They will never willingly demonstrate any of their tactical maneuvers. But... Because all of these battles are happening everywhere at once, if you're real clever and you just happen to be standing there and watching this one battle, you might pick up some stuff. Because there's these two units that are smashing into each other, they're going to inherently use some of these tactics against one another. 
That would be a good way for like, if you had a battle master fighter in your group, this would be a way. So, you know, you watch these dwarves and you kind of glean some information and this would be an RP way for them to gain some of their new abilities would actually, this would be a good RP way to do that, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So within the mountain is a single city that is divided into nine districts and each district is governed by a thane. These thanes are divided into groups of three. Each one of those thanes reports to an overthane. Each one of those three overthanes reports to the High King. The High King reports to Clangeddon himself. And there's three sides to a pyramid and Illuminati. Um, <laughs> so when I got a little bit further into the book, specifically whenever it was talking about Heliopolis on the next layer, it mentioned the rule of threes. Oh, okay. The rule of threes is apparently a very prominent thing within Arcadia, which is hard because... They don't talk about it. They don't talk about it. Irritates me. It's there. I mean, if you want to get into like sacred geometry and numerology and stuff like that, and three, it's supposed to be a very balanced number, obviously, because the whole it is pyramid triangle thing. But yeah, that gets into mysticism and that gets into metagaming or not quite metagaming, but definitely very meta. And that would be a theory crafting episode for later. (laughs) Yeah, but that does go further into my assertion last week about the way that the weeks work. Yeah, it would. Because, you know, 27 days is three cubed. Yep. So three weeks of nine days, nine is three squared. Yeah. So three threes to a week. That fits perfectly. Three weeks to a month, three months to a season. There's still four seasons. Well, there are because that's what you have to have for balance. Right. Three and four both are very prominent numbers in numerology. Yes. Which is another reason why seven is considered a very lucky number because it's three plus four. Exactly. Anyway, we're not talking about numerology. We're talking about Mount Yay, mysticism. A cast magic missile. A three. <laughs> so each of these sectors of the city has a distinct purpose. It may be the residential district. It may be the mining district. It may be the barracks district. Each of the sectors has at least some aspect of all of the other sectors within it, but it has a single primary purpose. Yeah, this is absolutely Dwarf Fortress. The ones that are specifically mentioned are Priestin. Priestin is the sector where all of the proxies and priests of Clan Geddon are. That's where all the churches are. It's where you go for healing. It's where you go when you need to consult the Oracle, if you will. Okay. Then the other one is Forgereth. Forgereth is where the smithies and foundries are located. So that's where you go whenever you need to get weapons or armor or other metal items made. And there is also an undercity of sorts, the bottom layer called the lowest hall. The lowest hall is where the dwarves who don't make the cut for the patrols go. They're all very angry and bitter because they have been told that they're not good enough. And so they like to work hard and play harder. And they are proof that lawful good isn't lawful nice. Yes. This is like the weird bitter island of misfit toys. <laughs> yes, it is. This would be if whenever they went to the island of misfit toys, instead of agreeing to help them and then ultimately going into Santa's bag and getting delivered to kids, they just beat up Rudolph and took his lunch money. And then sent him back with some termites for Santa's sled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There is also rumor of dark dealings within the Lowest Hall that Clangeddon is aware of, but turns a blind eye to. The details aren't specified, but I think you can get a pretty good idea whenever these are the 
highly trained militant dwarves of the multiverse. We'll get to this later. And I think this is actually fundamentally a large part of the issues with Arcadia as well. So the gods here have a really hands-off approach. And we talked about that in the previous episode where you have a lot of gods with their domains here, but they don't micromanage. They just kind of sit there and they don't directly affect anything within this realm most of the time. They're kind of neglectful. They're kind of just, I don't want to fully say neglectful, but they really are. They're not taking care of everything that's going on. They have their emissaries. They've got their proxies that are acting beneath them. And so they are not taking action because again the denizens themselves are not deities so they are going to have a bit of a shift they're not going to be perfectly aligned and so you get these points of corruption that start to form and with these gods and deities not handling that that corruption slowly kind of grows and i think that becomes more of an issue as we look deeper into arcadia is actually how far removed these deities are from their realm and frankly their responsibilities to the realm yeah i can see that all right so every dwarven petitioner within Mount Clangeddon is trained for battle. Even the ones that are in the lowest hall that aren't going out on patrols, they are still trained for battle. They are still going and doing the drills. They are still training as a unit. They're just really grumpy about being overlooked, feeling that they are ready to go out on patrols and not being chosen to do so. What was the name of the hunchback in 300? Uh, I don't remember. I forget, but it's that feel. Yes. So the petitioners expect that whenever they meet their final death outside of Mount Clangeddon, they will fade into the nothingness and they willingly march out into the lower plains to meet out death to the forces of evil. They willingly go out and face what they believe is oblivion. That is the mindset that they are in. All right. I like it. But unknown to them, because no one has ever told them this and no one has ever specified this within the world, Clangeddon watches over all of them. And if they die, their souls are actually plucked back into Arcadia and incorporated into the weave of the plane. Oh, okay. So that they might not suffer oblivion. So by going out and, you know, fighting valiantly and dying their final death outside of his realm. They all get to come home. They are actually achieving the nirvana that they are searching for. Okay, you know what? I'll give Clangeddon a tip of the head on that one. You know, he's actually doing something for his folks. So yeah, I kind of like it. It has that whole no man left behind feel to it as well. So I like that. Yeah. And Clangeddon is the only power known to have this ability. He's the only god known to have the ability to take the slain souls of his petitioners and pull them back to his realm. Gotcha. Which is a big reason why most of the gods whenever they have petitioners within their realm, don't let them leave. Right. But if you have the money, you can actually hire one of these bands of Dwarven Einherjar, the petitioners of Clangeddon, to march and fight for you. As long as you can convince them that whatever your goal is will advance either the causes of law or the causes of dwarf kind. So they will even willingly march into Akron out onto the battle cube and fight against the goblins or the orcs. Oh, nice. And this would be actually a really nice mercenary army to have. Definitely would not be cheap, but would be very nice to have. Mm. Yeah, I can see, let's say it'll cost you, say, 2,000 gold per Einherjar per encounter. 
Yeah. So you pick them up because you need to have them for this one battle. You have to win, yeah. You have to win. And so you drop the treasury of a medium-sized kingdom on the table and you get 20,009 Harriar for a day. I like it. <laughs> or a story twist that you could do is that if your BBEG has you know, a couple units of these mercenary groups, if you could somehow either convince them that what they're fighting for is not for good, not for dwarven kind, or perhaps if your rogue has been particularly successful, you can just bribe them and pay them more and switch them that way too. Would be a fun way to work, you know, just with mercenary groups in general, but especially with this group. I don't know that they would be copacetic with the concept of someone buying out their contract with a higher bid. That does not say lawful, neutral, siding to good. Okay. They seem to me to be a very noble, very honor code driven group and that they will vet their contracts before they take them. And once they take a contract, they uphold that contract. So one spot, stay bought? Yeah. Okay. The final detail for Mount Clangeddon is that the smiths of Mount Clangeddon are capable of making unparalleled weapons. Among these are just normal, non-magical weapons that can deal damage to creatures that would normally only be damaged by magical or silvered weapons. Interesting. So they're non-magical weapons that function as silvered magical weapons. I like it. And for a minimum cost of 500 gold, that's second edition numbers. It would probably be much larger in fifth edition. You can get a non-magical plus one weapon simply due to the craftsmanship of the weapon. So that harkens back to the third edition masterwork weapons. Right. That have an inherent bonus to them that are of a quality that you can enchant them, but are not in and of themselves magical. Right. All right. So that takes us to the end of Abelio. And now it gets weird. All right. So the second layer of Arcadia is called Buxanus. Like with Abelios, Buxanus is the name of another Gaulish Celtic god. In this case, one that is referred to in Roman writing as Gaulish Mars. All the sources that I can find claim that he is a Celtic nature god, specifically the god of boxwood trees. But if his name is an epithet of what the Romans referred to as Gaulish Mars, it stands to reason in my mind that he is a god of war. Maybe not directly. Maybe that is a a secondary or tertiary domain of his because Mars was the Roman God of war, exactly. the God of valor and battle. And so it strikes me as that would be sort of a parallel to draw. It may be completely wrong. I am also only inferring this. I only have like three lines from Wikipedia to base this on. So <laughs> it may so be completely wrong. So the sources but... are really deep. <laughs> oh yes. But Given that Buxanus is the mustering ground of Arcadia, where the assembled military might of the plane gathers to make sorties into the third layer, which is now in Mechanus, in an attempt to draw it back into Arcadia, because it has that very militant atmosphere to it, that also lends to the Gaulish Mars god of war sort of feel that I get. Gotcha. Access to Buxanus is heavily restricted. Very heavily, yes. And if you get in without permission, and you get noticed being there without permission, you get sent back to Abelios, usually with a few lumps to remind you of your folly. But there are numerous forgotten or long disused or hidden passages into Buxanus from Abelio, if you're willing to risk it. 
some of them go between the mountains, some of them go under the mountains, some of them go over the mountains. But this is where the Buseni are. So they're going to be guarding those passages. And there are mentions in the books of creatures that can suck the soul out of your body and leave you just walking around as a meat puppet. Yay, meat puppets. They're dementors. Okay. (laughs) Um, They don't go into detail on what those creatures are, but they do mention that. And that may just be a wives tale. That may just be a propaganda thing to discourage people from trying it. I can see that. Because that would be something that I can see the Harmonium doing. Yes. Because the Harmonium really doesn't want outsiders in here. They really don't. Because the Harmonium has a large number of, quote, training camps here in Buxanos. They used to also have them in the third layer, in Nemesis. And we're going to get into it in a little bit, but basically the experiments and the activities that they were performing in those camps are a big chunk of the reason why Nemesis shifted. Yeah, these camps are just a bit icky. No, they're not a bit. (laughs) Yeah, This is full-on cringe going. Yeah, it gets bad, so buckle up. So the goal of their activities within these camps is to see if they can actually change a naturally chaotic creature to function with a lawful mindset. So they're going to be snatching up things like fairies. They're going to be snatching up things like trolls. They're going to be snatching up things like the Asuras from Isgard. They're going to be grabbing them up and throwing them into these camps and trying to change them from chaotic creatures into lawful creatures through a little bit of hook and a whole lot of crook. Yeah. So, I mean, basically they are going through and they are trying to change the fundamental identity and aspect of these creatures. And even on the best of times, in the most magical sense, that's not going to be an easy or gentle process. No. And it has a lot of parallels to a lot of very problematic topics in our real world. You can draw parallels to this with white colonialism. You can draw a bit of parallels to the trope of the noble savage, to gay conversion. The moral arguments in the 18th and 19th century for slavery. There are a lot of very problematic topics that you can draw on very heavily without a lot of effort. Right. Even going through, you can go like political re-education camps, things like the Gulag or the Chinese camps. Yeah, the Uyghur camps. Unfortunately, on our side of the U.S. where we had the Asian internment camps during World War II, you know, you were here because we don't trust you, but here's how to be a good American. And or, it's just... or the concentration camps at the beginning beginning of the process in Nazi Germany before they started converting them into forced labor camps and death camps. So like I said, it becomes problematic extremely fast. If you need villains, they're right there. (laughs) This is exactly where you go whenever you want to have that misguided, good aligned BBEG. Yeah. Because this goes to show that quote unquote good on the axis of D&D alignments is subjective. Very much so. And again, that whole greater good, and I know this author's fallen out of flavor, but the whole JK Rowling things with Dumbledore, you know, I think is actually a really good example of this. You know, as we all grew up, we all read Harry Potter and Dumbledore was this great guy. And yeah, and you get to the final book and you kind of see that he was kind of a bastard. And the stuff he did early on was all for, quote, quote, the greater good. 
word for word. And then as an adult, you go back and you look at Dumbledore and he was kind of really a trash person. And that's most of Harry Potter as an adult, if you look back and it's like, wow, these people that you kind of grew up idolizing kind of really suck. But that's the perspective of a child versus an adult. You kind of get that same thing here is maybe the intention is good. The method's completely screwed up. And it brings up the question, does your end justify your means? Absolutely, yeah. And it's probably something that started off as something very innocuous, very well-meaning. And as they delved deeper into it, they found themselves more invested and less able to back out. Right. And so instead of making the hard decision and backing out, they doubled down. Right. And then they did it again and again and again to where now they are so bound up in this that they are spending all of their resources to make sure that no one finds out. I would even go as far as that they've done this for so long, meaning well. That they no longer see the problem with it? Yeah, they see what they're doing is right. And really that right there, if you are story writing, does make some of the best villains. I mean, you can have just a straight evil villain who wants to burn down the world, i.e. Keith Ledger's Joker. I mean, a great villain there, and he just wanted so chaos. But the really, really good villains are the villains you can relate to who think they are right, and they think they are doing good. And they might say, yeah, a few eggs might get broken along the way, but look what this is going to produce. It's worth it. Those are the memorable villains. Villains like Ozymandias in The Watchmen. Yeah. All right, let's... Step away from philosophy again for a minute. (laughs) But I like philosophy. I do too, but we also don't want this to be three hours long. Yeah, there's that. So the first realm within the second layer of Arcadia is Azoth. It is, understandably, the realm of Azoth, the minor god and servant of Mistra. He is a god of mages, and his realm is in a cave that is hidden in a hillside and hidden by trees and a glamour that only arcane casters can notice. Nice. But is he in a chair watching shadows on the wall? I mean, we're talking philosophy. I mean, once you get down to the bottom, he could be. <laughs> so the arcane casters can lead other people through the glamour. But if you don't have any arcane magical ability, you're not going to see it. Right. Once you're inside the cave, there is a staircase that is just suspended in the void. And the cave surrounding it is very dimly lit from these glowing crystals on the walls. And you go down and down and down and down all the way to the bottom. And when you reach the bottom, the entire cave suddenly comes into focus. And you have this massive miles wide cave with a town that takes up the whole floor. Kind of like the cities that we talked about in Pandemonium. Okay. Yeah, I'm casting Featherfall and jumping. Just going down that many spiral stairs sounds tiring. (laughs) You know, as a DM, I would say that you could do that. But to the perspective of everybody who is actually walking down the stairs, you're falling at the same rate. Okay. (laughs) Because you have to go step by step. It's kind of like an activation sequence almost. Okay, I can see that. Or that, you know, you could fall for a while. And then you just like magically shunted back onto the steps and you still have to walk down the same number of steps. steps. Gotcha. That, yeah, I could see you doing that as a DM. That sucks. Yeah. (laughs) The town within the cave is called Mage's Rest and it has a little bit of everything. You've got taverns and castles and spires and pits. And to anyone who is not an arcane caster, it just seems like utter chaos. Like everything was just tossed in and jumbled in almost as if this cave was just picked up out of pandemonium and dropped here 
Okay. But if you have arcane casting ability, everything just sort of makes sense. It just, yeah, from an arcane magical perspective, yeah, it makes sense for that to be there. It makes sense for that to be next to that. As a DM, I would say maybe that like as an arcane caster, you can sense ley lines. And so you can see the nodes and cross points where these would line up where a non-caster couldn't. And so, yeah, these are all lined up to channel ley lines and ley energy, but you'd have to be able to have the, the perception to sense those. And anyone who has even the smallest ability to cast arcane spells can claim citizenship here. Even if you just have the One magic cantrip. initiate feat. So you have two cantrips and a first level spell. If that's all the arcane ability you have. We love you anyway. <laughs> you can still come in. It's very common for powerful wizards who live here to take on apprentices because Azoth wants to spread knowledge liberally amongst his chosen worshippers. So he is very big on the free dissemination of information. See, I like Azoth. Azoth's my boy. Azoth is a librarian. I like Azoth too. Yeah. Azoth's kind of, uh, I, mean, I could see him as a librarian, kind of a tricksy one, but I mean, that just makes me like him all the more. <laughs> this is the guy last week we talked about that will find mages and give them scrolls. No, no that's, that's one not. of his proxies. Oh, okay. That was one of his proxies. Proxies. Okay. I thought yeah. that was Azoth. Okay. No. Same guy. I still like Azoth though. Yeah. Azoth is good. So the person in charge of the town is a wizard whose name is Jack Cross Eyes. He has okay. two different colored eyes. One of them is green. And anyone he is focused on with his green eye is compelled to tell the truth. Okay. And the other eye is hazel. And anyone he is focusing on with his hazel eye, it instantly dispels illusions and false auras, such as those hiding alignment. Okay. Fortunately, unfortunately, he can only focus on one creature at a time with one eye at a time. So he has to choose who he's looking at at any given time. Gotcha. I was just wondering if there's a way to get Jack cross eyes up into Marduk. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> you see what I did there with the, with, with the cross eyes? <laughs> yep. Yep. So Azoth has special rules regarding magic. By the will of Azoth himself, all arcane magic works normally, even spells that would normally be restricted or forbidden by the inherent nature of Arcadia. Because he is a god, this is his realm. He has total control over his realm. Fair enough. However, anyone who uses magic to intentionally harm another person within the realm is subject to Azoth's wrath in the form of having the same spell cast upon you. Oh, I like the whole eye for an eye thing. I like it. So if you cast magic missile at somebody, you get hit by the same number of missiles. Okay. If you cast ice storm on somebody, you get your own personal little five foot square ice storm that stays over you for the duration. Okay. And any arcane caster, regardless of alignment, is welcome as long as they follow the rules. So you can have a chaotic evil arcane caster here. It would be real tough for them because chaotic evil, they're going to have trouble following the rules. But as long as they follow the rules, they're welcome to come in and practice. Because he's a god of mages. Now, the one loophole I could see with this as a player that I would try to use to break the rule is if I was a higher level player and or multi-class, so I knew I had more hit dice. So maybe I'm like, let's call it a, a, a fifth level wizard and then a fifth level barbarian. So I've got, you know, a decent hit pool. So I can soak some damage. So yeah, I'm going to cast Flame Strike on you. And if it casts on me, it's going to take you out, but I can shrug off most of the damage. Yeah, you could do that. You would have RP consequences on top. Oh of yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah, I would say that. Absolutely. Once they knew that you had done that intentionally, you would not be able to have any more dealings within the city. I could see that. Or they just straight boot you out. I don't know if they would actually exile you, but they would definitely choose not to do business with you. They would give you the old-fashioned Amish shunning. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I could see that. 
And another important thing is that any magical item, any, any <laughs> magical item can be bought here for a price. Just one price. The price may be coin, but the price is usually not coin. Yes. Usually it is a service or a favor or a quest to go get something or a quest to go deal with some issue. So you have to think long and hard about whatever it is that you're trying to get and whether the price is worth it. Oh, you're going to find Faye here all day. Faye are going to love this place. Yeah. I mean, it may be a bit heavy on the law for Faye because you're still going to have that atmosphere of lawfulness. You'll have the atmosphere of lawfulness, but I mean, you have a bit of lawfulness. I mean, with Faye and their contracts, you know, I mean, they took oh, yeah. the chaotic, but they definitely hold their contracts. So I could see some emissaries or some mid-ranking nobles gathering favors, as it were. Oh, or yes. even then, too, depending on what the person does, maybe they grant a favor and they give something, but then now through some an action or action themselves are now hooked into a contract with Faye. Well, I did this for you. I gave you this. You did that. But then you needed this other thing and I just threw it in. So now you owe me this now. And now they're hooked in with the Faye. That could be a lot of fun to do. Oh, yeah. But this would be a great way to get access to some more of the... Patrons. <laughs> well, that. But I'm more interested in the item side. Okay. This is a great way to get hold of specific artifacts. Yes. Because you come in and you have to ask around and you have to do favors for people in order to connect you to the people who would be able to get the artifact. You have to do favors to get the privilege right. of asking for the favor. And then once you yes, finally like get through jumping through all the hoops and you get to the person who can get you the artifact that you're looking for, then you have to do whatever they want you to do in order to get the artifact. I could see a lot of heirloom items tied into here too, where you have to complete that ritual or that thing for the item to advance. And maybe people are doing that to want to advance their own heirloom artifact item, or maybe your item is tied to here. So you have to do something for someone within this. Yeah. I mean, you could do a lot with this. This is a lot of fun. The two groups of items that I can definitely see doing something like that for would be the orbs of dragon kind. Yes. And the rod of seven parts. Okay, yeah. Being able to track down the person who can find those items and then doing what you need to learn the location of those items so that you can go and get them. The shards of the black diamond would be yeah. here as well. The fragments of the gray gem. Yep. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. This There's thing a is lot just, of story here. Yeah. Yeah, this thing is rife with story hooks. I want to see a magical school game set here. Ooh, yes, yeah. please. Forget Strixhaven. I want you in Azeth. I need to get Strixhaven still. That's on my to-buy list. I need to fix that. Okay, continuing on, because yes. we're getting distracted again. <laughs> the other major realm within Buxanus is Heliopolis. Heliopolis is the realm of the Egyptian slash Mulharandi gods Ra, Isis, Osiris, and Horus. So all four of them are here. The realm itself is divided up as a triangle. And the triangle is divided up into three mostly equal parts, following the rule of threes. Ra, Isis, and Osiris each control one of the three parts. Ra's slice of the pie is a little bit bigger than the other two because he is the more powerful deity of the three. Okay. And Horus just sort of wanders from realm to realm because he's family. He is that uncle that just comes and crashes on your couch all the time. Uncle Couch Crasher. <laughs> yeah, Uncle Couch Crasher. <laughs> because he is too chaotic to actually hold his own realm together. 
So he doesn't have one. If Horus is an actual deity, I think we just pissed him off. We're going to have some answers for that in the afterlife. But yeah, I totally, he's now forever Uncle Couch Crasher. <laughs> the line from the book is, he wanders Heliopolis and avenges those who need avenging. Okay. That's his whole shtick. There is a distinct running tension between Ra and Osiris. As there will. Because Ra's purview includes the destruction of undead. And Osiris's purview includes the preservation of the dead and non-destructive undead. So Osiris has a bunch of non-evil undead walking around his realm. And Ra is contract bound to destroy undead. So you see where the problem is. (laughs) There's a little bit of friction. Yeah. Osiris and Isis are married. So their realms have a little bit of overlap. Isis is a god of magic and nature. Osiris is a god of the dead. So there is a little bit of overlap between death and decay and the natural order. Again, I would see a grove of circle of sword druids probably kicking around here. Yeah, right on that boundary line between the two. Yeah. And then Ra is the great grandfather of both Isis and Osiris. So he is able to come and go to their realms without issue if he just wanted to. If he wanted to just walk into Isis's realm, he could. Right. But generally, the gods tend to wait at the borders until they are granted permission to come in just out of courtesy because they are family. Yeah. The rulership of Heliopolis sometimes changes hands. So if Ra has some pressing business outside of Heliopolis, he passes control over to Osiris and then he leaves. And then Osiris gets his zombies all over the place and Ra has to come back and clean up. And it's a huge deal. (laughs) And then if Osiris has something he has to go take care of, he passes it over to Isis. And then he shoots off and does whatever he's going to do. Because Ra would kill all the zombies. We don't want that. (laughs) Well, Osiris has to have control in order to pass it. Right. So if Ra is there and Osiris has something he needs to go take care of, it doesn't matter if Isis is there because Ra is still in control. Okay, gotcha. And the weather within Heliopolis reflects who is in control at the time. So when Ra is there, the realm is markedly warmer, even indoors and in the shade. When Osiris is in control, the realm is markedly cooler, even when out in the sun. And when Isis is in control, it's balanced and works like it's supposed to, because she's a nature goddess and that is part of nature. So basically we've got a summer court, a winter court, and a wild court. (laughs) So Heliopolis, as the name suggests, is the only place in Arcadia where the cycle of day and night is not provided by the orb of day and night because you have a sun god here who is actively doing sun god things. Yeah. He does coincide the cycle of day and night within Heliopolis to match that of the orb of day and night. But the day night cycle within Heliopolis is bound to Ra and his duties and not to the orb. And again, just keeping it in sync is a general nicety for visitors. Ra doesn't seem to be like too big of a douche, so I'm cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he waits, so he, he knocks, he tries to keep things easy. I mean, all he wants to do is destroy undead. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, Can yeah, you really. blame him? Well, I mean, <laughs> again, my heart goes to circles of the spores. There's a certain point. You can't kill me in a way that matters. <laughs> all right. So each god's micro realm reflects their personal nature. It has a single major town and it has its own special rules. Ra's realm is a bright sun and burning desert. So it's out in the sands of Egypt, out in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the day. Okay. There's not a whole lot else there. The one city, Thekele is a massive open air market. And it's almost entirely constructed of tents. 
Undead are completely forbidden to enter. If they try, they wither, explode, and die within one round. No exceptions. Nice. Very impressive. Isis's realm is the middle ground between Ra and Osiris. It is lush and green and moderate in all things, and is the source of all of the animals and creatures that are born in Heliopolis. The city Gezektet is the most normal by material plane standards. It is where many of the craftsmen and uh, laborers are. There is a magical river, the River Isis, running through it. And within the realm, the water of the River Isis functions as holy water. But only within the realm. Yeah, if you take it out of Isis's realm, not outside of Heliopolis, outside of Isis's realm, it just turns into normal water. Okay. And because Isis is also a goddess of magic, she favors the free and open exchange of information and ideas and all spells are available without qualification, just like in Azeth, except that this also includes divine and natural magic. Ooh. However, if a spellcaster uses a spell to harm another, they are immediately stripped of all spellcasting ability until they leave Heliopolis. Oh, that would be so much fun to do if you have the murder hobo wizard and just like, okay, great. Here's your quarterstaff. Have fun. Here's your dagger. Roll your 1d4. Go for it. Yeah, here, fight that orc. Get him. <laughs> yeah, you singed that group of guards with that fireball. Have fun fighting them off with a stick and no armor. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I cast nope. <laughs> no, you don't. Oh, and by the way, your uh, mage armor has fallen off. All your concentration spells are kaput. Yeah, I love it. Yep. Can't cast a ritual. You got nothing. Nothing. You're a pleb. That's your new class. Pleb. <laughs> I would even go so far as to say they cannot be affected by spells. So like clerics can't heal them. I would say they cannot be affected by beneficial spells. Yes, beneficial yeah. spell. And then finally, Osiris's realm is partly above ground, partly below ground. It is the resting place of dead kings who ruled wisely. And non-evil undead are free to walk the realm unmolested. The city, Memphiria, is constructed entirely of white marble. And it has this pervasive chill to it. And everything just moves a little slower. It's a little harder to move. Everything's sort of sluggish. Just that atmosphere, that chill that you get and all non-evil undead lack any of their special undead abilities so like mummy lords don't have a fear aura they don't have mummy rot vampires the second edition vampires at least they don't have level drain okay they're just undead but they're just people okay and then horus not having a realm of his own, is welcome in all three and is able to pursue wrongdoers from one realm to another or even out into Arcadia proper if necessary. But he's going to drink all your juice boxes and sleep on your couch. He's going to drink your milkshake. He is totally going to drink your milkshake, little bastard. <laughs> but yeah, so that's one of those things where if you have somebody who has done something especially heinous in one of these realms and decides that, oh, I'm just going to duck out of Heliopolis and head off on my merry way. La-di-da-di-da, the gods, they're stuck there. Nope, Horus is going to find you. Anyway, that takes care of Heliopolis. Now to the squicky part. Yeah, all right, let's do it. So if you think you're going to have some issues with all of the icky things that we were talking about with the Harmonium at the beginning of Buxanos, this is probably a good place to, to stop. Yeah, we've enjoyed you. Thank you. We'll be here next week. If you want to dive in, follow us. This gets wonky. Yeah, this gets problematic real quick. So we've got Melodia. Melodia is the town run by the Harmonium. Their headquarters within the plane is a giant monolithic structure in the center of town. 
the catch line from the second edition book for this town is with love and some discipline, everything just falls into place, almost like pieces of a puzzle. The ends usually justify the means. Oh my God. There's so much wrong with that. I'm only reading you because I love you. And it's only getting worse. Oh my God. All right. So Melodia is where the members of the harmonium are trained to become Sigil's police force. The town itself has about 10,000 people and it's almost run like a big family or a cult commune. Yeah. A cult commune is probably a bit closer. Everyone knows everybody else and Everyone can spot a newcomer instantly. Oh, it's Heaven's Gate. Was that the one in Texas with David Koresh? The one in Waco? Yeah. The Branch Davidians? Branch Davidians, yeah. That's who it was, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that. All right, let's do it. (laughs) Once everyone is confident that the newcomer is on the up and up, they're left to their own devices, but that may take anywhere from minutes to years to achieve. So you're going to have to do a lot of convincing to make everyone okay with you and you have to be okay with everyone being okay with you. Yeah. You have to be okay with being that kind of person. Yeah. So everything functions without incident in Melodia. What one group starts, another group can come along and pick it up and finish it without any hesitation. The town itself runs almost like a single organism. Just everyone knows exactly what has to happen to make the next thing happen. Cause they're all freaking brainwashed. Mm hmm. <laughs> there isn't a whole lot in the line of entertainment here either, mainly because their idea of fun is to listen to speeches in the central square or to sing hymns in church or to make sure that everyone's taken care of. Quote, their idea of fun, in short, would stifle an archon. This is so squeaky. I just, I feel dirty. <laughs> this makes me Yeah, this gross. is every horror movie where you come into that little Midwestern American town yeah. where everyone has their white picket fence and everyone goes to church on Sunday and everything is just so. Right. Yeah. Everything's about to go downhill about that quick too. Yep. So the harmonium patrols on the street have absolute authority. The structure of the patrols follows the rule of three so that you have one watchman that is commanding three guards per squad. And anyone who resists the will of the harmonium patrols is immediately considered guilty of something and arrested. Just flat out. There we have thought police, boys and girls. There we go. We we jumped right into 1984. Yeah. This is 1984. This is Minority Report. This is all of that all just sort of wrapped up together. Yay! Let's nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. (laughs) So as I mentioned, the headquarters for the Harmonium is in the center of town. It is this huge monolithic structure, hundreds of yards to a side, and it's filled with meeting halls, prisons for the, quote, guilty, and places where they can, quote, retrain those who have strayed from the Harmonium's ideal of goodness. Right. Now, the problem is this, is you have these training halls, we have these re-education camps, and now we're going to go back to that initial quote, with love and some discipline. That's some discipline. These are torture camps. So the way that the system of law is set up within the city of Sigil, the Harmonium are the police force. They're the ones who are patrolling the streets. If you do something wrong, they're the ones that are going to snatch you up and take you to the courts. The governors, the fraternity of order, are the faction that run the courts. So they are going to see the evidence and they are going to judge based on the evidence and based on the laws, whether or not you actually broke the laws. Right. And if you did break the laws, then you are passed over to the mercy killers, the faction that you see in Akron, who administer justice. 
that is how the system progresses within the city of Sigil. Right. You don't have that here. The harmonium controls everything here. And so you don't have that tempering of the zealotry from the faction of pure law. And then you have the lawful evil bent of the punishment. You don't have that tempering faction. Right. So that's why it gets real squicky real quick. It does. The other thing, too, is as we've shown throughout some of the other realms in the other cities, you know, while it is rare, there is the occasional person who can either shift or hide their alignment so they don't appear as not lawful good. And so if you have a chaotic or even evil person that's part of one of these three with this Harmonium patrols, because they have absolute authority, whatever they say is law. It's kind of like Judge Dredd, you know, and if you get that corrupt judge, who's going to refute them? Where's your witness? I'm the witness. That's all you need. Right. And that would be for whoever is pretty high up in the command structure, really. Right. Yeah. Because the way that the harmonium functions, you obey the orders of your superiors. So if your superior happens to be evil and you don't know that you were given an order, you're going to carry out that order because that's what your duty is to do. This is one of the few places where I was following orders might be a defense. Probably not, but maybe. If it didn't work for the Nazis, it's not going to work for the Harmonium. I'm sorry. No, I'm I'm good with that. That's fine. Let's throw them all in the pit. (laughs) All right. So outside of Melodia, within this realm, there are numerous training camps where evil and chaotic creatures are brought in to have their innate natures corrected. Just pray the chaotic away? Oh, it's a little more than praying. Yeah, it is. Again, this is where it gets real squicky real Real quick. This is where you start getting into the parallels to like gay conversion therapy and complete brainwashing. Right. It's bad. Stockholm syndrome levels of stuff. Yeah, it's just bad. It is. Bad, bad, bad. Some people claim that these guests, as they refer to them, are just people that have been snatched off the streets of Sigil that are just dragged into Arcadia and thrown into these camps as opposed to being thrown into the proper justice system. But if that is actually the case, the Harmonium is being very good about hiding it because there's no evidence whatsoever that that is actually happening. It's just one of those stories on the street. So the camps themselves are set up around regimented schedules. So everything lawful, everything orderly. You get your meals at a very specified time. You do things when they say to do them, how they say to do them. And there's punishment for anyone who doesn't adhere to the schedule. They also have to drink from and bathe in water from the city of Imperia on the fifth layer of Mount Celestia. We talked about this a bit in our Mount Celestia episode. This is the water that can cure a creature's alignment back towards law and goodness. There's so much wrong with this. And those who resist the training are assigned a special detail who make it a point to beat them into submission. This makes the Spanish Inquisition seem forgiving. Yeah, this is more on the line of the German witch trials as opposed to the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. Which, by the way, if you are not familiar, the German witch trials was far bloodier than the Spanish Inquisition ever was. So if you're interested, go look into that. That was a big chunk of my Protestant Reformations class. Salem what? <laughs> no, this was well before Salem. Salem. I know, but what I'm saying is it made Salem look like This is about a century like before Salem. Right, but what I'm saying is it made Salem look, look light. Well, only because it was limited to a single town. Granted. Anyway, we're, we're not getting into that right now. Okay. So there are graveyards outside of these camps that are steadily growing because they 
go too far. Most of the guards are not okay with that because they are under the impression that their whole purpose is to get them to turn to law and goodness. No, but now they're dead, so they can be at rest with their nature now. So it's really But they can't okay. be lawful good if they're dead. <laughs> yeah. That is literally their mentality, is they can't be lawful and good if they're dead. So they actually do see every time one of these prisoners dies as a failure because they failed to convert them. So I had an evil cleric once because evil clerics. And that was one of my things is if I had an NPC or an enemy that really, really angered me as a player, kill them off. And then I would resurrect them so I could kill them again. And I could see that kind of thing happening where, you know, they were beaten or corrected to a point where their body gave out and they would have a cleric resurrect them so they could, quote, continue their work and work on their conversion. I could see that happening unfortunately. Um, yeah, but a lot of these are going to be extra planar creatures okay. that things like resurrection spells aren't going to work on. I mean, you can't resurrect a devil. Yeah. So that's another reason why they're, you know, planting them in the boneyard. Right. So the camps themselves are also under a tranquility field. It's this magical aura where anyone who comes into the camp has to succeed on a save. In second edition, it was a save versus spells. In fifth edition, it would probably be a charisma save along the lines of like a zone of truth. Okay. Um, because you're aware of it. Gotcha. Or they find it difficult to disobey the guard's commands. Ew. You could do it as a wisdom save and just have it function like suggestion. Yeah, that's probably how I would do it. And then you have them make a save against the suggestion spell every time a guard gives them an order. Ugh. And the field is specifically designed to ignore Harmonium members. So if you are a member of the Harmonium, it's completely moot. You don't have to worry about it. But anyone, even members of the Harmonium who are at the camp without an explicit reason to be there, are viewed with extreme suspicion. Yeah, this whole thing is gross. It is. Again, if you want to do a darker campaign, this really aligns itself up for it. Ian and I had talked, we would actually like to see a story plot hook done through here but it would have to be done very delicately probably by certain people of the community otherwise it's just gonna come off as wrong this can be worked you can build a great story off of this it gives you a lot to work with it gives you a lot to say though you don't want to have you know the hero white guy trope which is a thing so if you do that do it delicately do it gently this whole area is really really problematic it squeaks me out quite a lot yeah you get a lot of the feel of white colonialism here you get a lot of the missionary culture going on here there's a lot of problematic stuff here yeah and like i said i have 500 ideas for how you would incorporate that into a game i don't want to touch it yeah one, two, three, not it. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. We have one last bit to talk about. Nemesis, the missing third layer of Arcadia. In third edition, they transposed some letters and they changed the name to Menesis. This is another layer that is named after a Gallic Celtic god. This one being the patron god of the settlement of Nemesis, which is modern day Nîmes in southern France. This layer has been transported into Mechanus and has become a very major cog in Mechanus. The public story is that an overabundance of Formian hive cities forced it to shift. The actual story is that the Harmonium, with their training camps, pushed it into law. Yay, the Harmonium. <laughs> there are still a number of portals 
that lead from Buxanus into Nemesis that are still completely functional. The Harmonium holds very tight control over all of these portals, restricting all access to the cog. If you are not part of a Harmonium assault into Nemesis, you're not going to get through them. The public story is they don't want to risk further corruption to the cog as they are trying to go and cleanse it of law in order to bring it back. But it's probably just that they don't want anyone investigating their probable role in the layers shift into Mechanus. Because then that's going to disrupt their work, which is, quote, for the greater good. That said, I would love to just unleash the Formian all over the Harmonium and just let them do ant stuff. <laughs> yeah. So there is an ongoing struggle for the fate of Nemesis. On the Mechanist side, the Modrons, led by a Decaton called Blue Streak, because he wears a blue sash, are working alongside the Fraternity of Order, or the Governors, to squash resistance and ensure that Nemesis remains a permanent fixture in Mechanus. However, there are Arcadian petitioners here who got sucked across when the layer shifted. They're still there. And so they are remaining here and they are fighting a guerrilla war against the Modrons, trying to drive them off. And they are working to try and get back to Arcadia. And I like that. And this could lead stuff to this could be a lot of fun maps. If you want to kind of do an urban warfare map, this would be a really good place to set that up. I think it would be a lot of fun. Not urban warfare, because there are no cities in Nemesis. Is it just a flat plain? It's primarily grasslands. It is a very idyllic nature location. Okay, I figured there'd be some cities, at least one or two cities here, but okay. Well, the Modrons have built fortresses throughout, primarily on the perimeter of the cog, gotcha. because it is it is now a cog. Right. And they are slowly working their way in towards the center. The Harmonium does periodically send forces of Harmonium soldiers and Arcadian petitioner soldiers, so probably a large number of groups of Klangedon's Dwarven Nine Harriar are coming in here and fighting the Modrons and the Governors over this cog. Okay. And it's leading to a lot of very high tension between the Harmonium and the Fraternity of Order within Sigil. Understandably so. I'm looking at this from a potential storyhook standpoint. I can see a Planescape game where the Governors are hiring the party to go in and investigate Nemesis. And they end up finding the camps and unraveling that whole conspiracy from that side. I could definitely see that. That would make for a good game. And then in the end, depending on how you progress it, you could end up getting the layer back into Arcadia where it's supposed to be. You could end up repairing the natural progression of petitioner souls through Arcadia. You could completely dismantle the entire training camp structure of the Harmonium. Yes, please. You could end up doing all of that at the end of a huge arc. And I would love that prospect. Anyway, so the petitioners are naturally at odds with the Harmonium patrols because the petitioners who are here know that it's the Harmonium. That's the reason why they're stuck here in Mechanus. And the leader of the resistance within Nemesis is a half-elf named Endivar Lithanol, who used to work one of the Harmonium camps. And he realizes that the Harmonium is the reason why this has happened, and he is actively trying to undo it. He acknowledges his mistake, and he is trying to atone. He's a very Schindler sort of character. Okay, I can see that. There are a couple of proxies of Arcadian gods here as well. A proxy of Azoth, 
named Jamal Sarani. I like his description. He is a tall, flamboyant black man dressed in a lion skin and carrying a bone staff as tall as him. Dude, I like him. Yeah. He is known for making grandiose entrances and unseen exits. Snazzy. He's Batman. Kind of. (laughs) Just far more flamboyant than Batman ever was. And also, another prominent one is a proxy of Mariadar named Ferili Krenarum. He's an orc. And he volunteered to stay behind because Mariadar's realm used to be on this layer. Oh. And because you cannot force a god to move from one plane to another, Mariadar shifted from Nemesis to Buxanus whenever the layer shifted. Okay. And they decided to stay behind and help the petitioners within Nemesis to control their emotional urges because now they are no longer bound by good. Oh. Because they're in Mechanus. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, wow. I never even considered that aspect of it. Wow. And so if they give into their quote unquote natural tendencies, because these are the monstrous humanoids, they are naturally evil in the old editions. If they start giving into that tendency, they're going to shift out of Mechanus into Acheron. Oh, wow. Because they are primarily orcs and goblinoids. So they're going to start shifting out of Mechanus instead of going back to Arcadia where they're supposed to be. They're going to end up starting to shift and go into Acheron. That leads into so many issues. That's just, yeah, okay. I have an issue with this plane. There's just so much wrong with this plane. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that is largely it. So you have this layer of Arcadia that has shifted because of the mortals showing up and fucking around and finding out. And now everyone is trying to fix it without addressing the problem that caused the thing to happen in the first place. Right. So there's a lot of that there and there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Again, this realm's hard. There's a lot you can work with. And if you want to jump and do some storylines, there's a lot of story here. There's a lot of different things. I love the Mage City. I like Isis. You know, there's some cool stuff here. There's a lot of social commentary you can do. There's a lot of problem that you can face. You can avoid. You can just neglect and say, I'm not dealing with it, which is perfectly fine as a party DM. That's all on you. But yeah, this plane squicks me more so than even a lot of the evil planes. This this plane bothers me. Uh, yeah. all right that brings us to the end of arcadia that was another beast of an episode but yes we are finally done with arcadia this coming friday we have another live stream interview it is an interview with christian from my sound delve it's a player facing app for sound effects for your ttrpgs Woohoo! he's great people it's a fun little product to play with Yes. Um, So we're excited to have him on and talk to him about that. So that live stream is going to be on Friday the 22nd, 9 p.m. Eastern time. Come and watch it with us on Twitch. Come join us in chat. If you can't, we are going to release it as our podcast next Wednesday, as well as the video of the interview on our YouTube channel. Excellent. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, TikTok, and YouTube. Just search under common taste. You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash under common taste. That's where all of our write-ups go. Most of our write-ups are free. Some of them are patron exclusive and are available to patrons of all pledge levels. So if you want to help support the show financially, please consider coming and becoming a patron. Finally, we are on Discord. We'd love to talk to you. You can find a link to our Discord in the show notes. 
Excellent. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify. As always, please give us a rate and a review. This helps us increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thank you so much for trooping through Arcadia with us today. Stay safe. We'll see you next week with Christian from My Sound Delve. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willx underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at DeviantArt.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.